Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table, where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Join our fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community, as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. This is the official talk show for the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, or we just say AI Arthritis for short. My name is Tiffany Westrich-Robertson. I am the CEO of the organization and also a person living with AI arthritis diseases myself, and that would be non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. Yes, that is a full mouthful there. And I am really excited to be here today representing the patient voice alongside three wonderful professionals in the space that we will be talking about biosimilars. So this is a hot topic for people living with AR arthritis diseases. And I am very honored. We are very lucky to have these three here to speak with us today. So I'm going to turn it over First, to Michael Riley, and give us a little bit of hello and tell us about yourself. Thank you, Tiffany, for having us here today. I am the executive director of the Alliance for Safe Biologic Medicines. Uh, That is a position I have held since ASBM was created back in uh, December of 2010. We have been, from the very beginning, once the Affordable Care Act gave the authority of the FDA to set up the pathway and move forward with biosimilars. ASBM has been there both domestically and also we are very involved on an international level. Um, Prior to my work at ASBM, I was uh, mostly in the Department of Health and Human Services in the Office of the Secretary, serving as the Associate Deputy Secretary, working on uh, FDA and CMS uh, regulatory issues. And it's great to be here. All right. Well, it's absolutely great to have you. And and A-Arthritis is a proud member of ASBM, have been for many years, and just a real big fan of everything that the coalition is doing. And we also have with us Dr. Ralph McKibben. Hi there. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm always happy to help and happy to have input here. I'm also affiliated with the Alliance for Safe Biologic Medicines, working as a chair And my background is more than 30 years as a practicing gastroenterologist, and I'm still in active practice. But I have an advocacy background working with the Pennsylvania Society of Gastroenterology. I'm past president, the Digestive Disease National Coalition, which is an umbrella organization of pharma, physician, and patient groups working together to advocate. And through the American College of Gastroenterology, working in practice management, working on insurance contracting and things like that. So I have a broad background, and uh, that kind of brings me here today to talk about biosimilars and biologics, which are a hot topic. Yes, they they are maybe the one of the hottest topics for sure in the patient community. And uh, last but certainly not least, we have Andrew Spiegel. Is it Spiegel or Spiegel? It's Spiegel. I've heard you Ms. speak Spiegel. before. <laughs> you're, you're too young to really know that, you know, the name Spiegel used to be very popular with the Spiegel catalog. 
but the older folks. I, know that's, that. I really? do remember that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm Andrew Spiegel. Um, I hold a number of positions in this patient advocacy community. I am the chair of the World Patients Alliance, which is a umbrella organization of nearly 400 patient groups from 113 countries representing all diseases. And I've uh, certainly gotten a great deal of international exposure in holding that position. I'm also CEO of the Global Colon Cancer Association. And similarly, we are an umbrella organization to all colorectal cancer and bowel cancer organizations around the world. And some of the other positions I've held are where I met these gentlemen at the DDNC, the Digestive Disease National Coalition. I'm a past chair. So I worked with Dr. McKibben on policy issues for the United States for many years at the DDNC. And of course, I've worked with Michael since he created the Alliance for Safe Biologic Medicines more than a decade ago. And I've been with him since the beginning. And we have literally traveled the world advocating for patient-centered policies We have met with regulators uh, literally in every major country, continent around the world. And uh, Michael is being very humble with how much work he and the organization has really done to make sure that the patients are at the forefront of all biosimilar policies that have been enacted around the globe over the last decade. So really thankful that you've invited us here, Tiffany, to talk about biosimilars today. Yeah. And again, thank you all so much for being here. Uh, I wanted to sort of just start out as a person living with these diseases myself and speaking on behalf of the community, you know, there are a lot of questions around biosimilars and they start with just what is a biosimilar, which we're going to jump right in in a moment. But I think why we wanted to bring this to the table or to the forefront right now is because we are at the point where patients are moving to biosimilars. And there's a a lot of good that comes with this and healthcare costs and saving money. And we're going to talk about the international aspect of this as well, our organization being international. And I have attended a couple amazing webinars hosted by some of the groups represented here today and did a wonderful job on showing where we are here, where I live in the United States, but also how this is relevant internationally. And when I talk to other patients, the biggest thing that comes up is just fear. And I think it's not only fear. I think the fear is derived a lot from just simple lack of knowledge on, wait a minute, I if this isn't the same to what I'm using, what is this going to do to the quality of my life? And I can say the biologic I'm on, it took a while for it to start working. I had one that worked amazing for about six or seven years. And when it stopped, it took about a year. And now that I have a continuity of care, now that I am in a place I can sit here at the table and speak with all of you and have high energy and probably work a little bit more the rest of the day, I couldn't do that if I didn't have the biologic or the access to treatment that works best for me. And that's why this is so important because there will be several, many millions of patients around the world who might be facing a time where they are being told it's time to switch to biosimilar. So let's come together, have a conversation, learn a little bit about what they are, what are some of the issues surrounding biosimilars, what do doctors and patients What do we 
both of us kind of kind of think about this. So we're going to get into that as well. And then we're going to provide resources. So let's start by talking about literally what are biosimilars. And I think Dr. McKibben, you are going to start us off. Well, I'm happy to do that. And uh, one of the ways I like to explain complex things is try to use simple terms. Atoms are, you know, the building blocks of molecules and, and whatnot. I think just to talk about what is the size, and many of these are antibodies as an example. So an antibody is 50,000 atoms in size. So think of a gigantic transformer robot made out of Legos. One Lego versus 50,000. And these things are made by living yeast organisms, et cetera. They create these antibodies through their own genetics, and they're directed towards something. But because they're made by living organisms, there's a definite possibility that they will not be exactly the same. They are directed at the same offending antibody or problem in the person that's causing the disease, but they are not exactly identical. So when you have this, you have something that's very similar. You're going to have a hard time telling it apart. It's tested to show that it does the same thing, that there's no additional fears, side effects, reactions, et cetera. And they go through a lot of complex testing, but they can't label it identical because that would mean it's exactly the same thing. And so it isn't. It's highly similar. And that's a charged word. Michael and Andy had some discussion on it earlier. Similar is one of those things that scares you. It's like, well, that's close, but it's not the real thing. But a biologic is a big molecule that has a function. It's made by a living organism. And the similar is made the same way, but it's a different company's process. So it can only be called highly similar. Okay. And that in itself can generate some level of concern for people like me living with these diseases. But one of the points or one of the words that came out of this is, you know, a safety or or research. And we're going to go into that a little bit because I think it's important for patients to be aware of the research that has happened and where biosimilars are in different places of the world, because that's also going to impact when they may start to be connected to these if they are. So could I just jump in? Yeah, too? go ahead. To say that as a former regulator, I think the most important thing when Dr. McKibben talks about the word fear, fear is from the unknown. Fear is from, you know, basically there's an absence of information and then people go to fill that information. One of the purposes, uh, and I think this is something that Andy and I have really focused on, me as a former regulator, him as a patient advocate over the years from the beginning, was to make sure that you are giving accurate information so that ultimately the issue isn't, and, and I we often see this where there are conversations about saying something's different is implying that it's worse. Saying something's different is implying that it's inferior. Saying something's different is trying to, and, and literally we've worked on this issue, whether it comes to naming, naming something different. There's a big discussion about that issue because if you name it something different, you're saying it's something it is inferior. And ultimately what really matters is that the regulatory standards uh, are kept high and they are. And if you're approved as a biosimilar in the U.S., and we certainly have focused on regulatory standards globally, that we don't believe that there is any way that you should diminish those standards, keep those standards high. And then you can go in and basically fill in the educational void and say the first thing you need to know is that from a safety and efficacy standpoint, 
basically they are basically equivalent. And we'll get into other issues that are related to this, like interchangeability. But at the end of the day, there is a distinction between saying that it's very, very close. Safety and efficacy is similar, but ultimately physicians still want to be in charge of decisions. And that's a big topic that, you know, I know we're going to get into, but it's really important to understand that just because a physician says they want to be making a decision on behalf of a patient doesn't mean they don't have confidence in the biosimilar itself. And it's their job in part to educate the patient about the quality to say you have nothing to be concerned about. Yeah, absolutely. And just to piggyback on what you just said, as far as making sure that the words are clear and we're using terminology that is th- that doesn't evoke any more fear. Something to also consider as a person living with the diseases, we are often in online groups and these are international groups. I mean, you're talking to people in Canada, you're talking to people in Australia and we're all dealing with this, but then you have these perspectives that may or may not come from a a position of having the background knowledge. So it perpetrates and and you start seeing these conversations where peer-to-peer conversations, they're listening to what the other patients are saying. And I think that that's a place that organizations like AI Arthritis can really get in there and start to take the opportunity as we're in there as well relating people to the right information. And I also, you mentioned it matters about the regulatory standards. Could you just elaborate a little bit for those who may not be familiar what that means? Sure. I mean, there has been conversations mostly going on around the WHO and others about the need that basically in less developed countries, there is a concern that the regulatory standards are too high. Andy has been with me where we presented and I presented in in Dublin and in Berlin where we had conversations and panel conversations with uh, EMA regulators that that literally after I presented and my final bullet was that there should be no easy point of entry, meaning that the standard should be the same no matter where you live. You should never reduce standards of safety and efficacy in a country because they might have resource issues. Because who is that to say that, you know, because you happen to live in a country with less a less developed country. And the EMA in particular has has argued uh, on times that there's actually a moral um, calling for us to recognize that you need to reduce those standards in those countries. And we just say we disagree. We think the standards that are good enough for the people in the U.S. are good enough for everybody. They should be kept. There shouldn't be diminished. And if you do that, you do undermine. And Dr. McKibben certainly as a physician can tell you, and we know as you get into things like interchangeability where more data is required, that that gives you an even higher degree of confidence. And then you get into issues like substitution. So just from a regulatory perspective, we think that one of the most important things to do is that let's build on the success we have now and don't kind of revisit. Well, as I say to people, what would be the new reduced level of standard for a regulatory approval? Where do you go from where you are, where you're building all this confidence over a period of time to all of a sudden you say, well, we think it's too high in certain countries. They can't meet that standard. So let's let them come a little below that. And then what is that new floor? That's where we're concerned. Okay. And just for reference, EMA, European Medicines Agency. Mm-hmm. And we're just, we're talking about as these medicines are being researched and shown to be, to be working, to be effective, to be safe, and the standards of 
in this case, European Medicines Agency, United States. We're talking Food and Drug Administration. So just wanted to to clarify that. And you're and you're all, and you're also just one more thing. It's also important to note that when this conversation is going on at say the WHO or wherever it may be going on, it's really not even talking about the standards. There's no conversation about reducing the standards within the European countries that are under the EMA. They're talking about reducing the standards in other countries that are less developed. And what I say is, you know, if you're not willing, if you don't think you want to reduce them in your own country, why are you looking at reducing those standards in less developed countries? Absolutely. I'm going to turn it back to sort of the original questions that I was saying as a person living with diseases, as far as what patients are really concerned about. I know, Andy, you had some things to add to that as well. Yeah. So a lot of the work I've done over the last decade has been from the perspective of a patient advocate. I've been in the patient advocate community for more than two decades. And so I feel like I have some pulse on how patients feel about these medicines, especially with all the survey data that we've conducted and reviewed and, and all of the work that we've done all around the world. And, and, and I think that what you would hear if you surveyed most patients is that they are excited about the introduction of biosimilars into the marketplace because biosimilars create more treatment options for patients. And with more treatment options, comes more decisions that the patient and the physician can make together about which medicine is right for them. And it also serves as a reduction of overall healthcare expenses. And so one of the things that we've seen in Europe where the countries track the savings from introducing biosimilars into a marketplace and where they track the reinvestments of those savings, more patients gained access to the treatment because of the savings of the introduction of biosimilars. So that's the promise of biosimilars. Because as a patient, you know, why would I want to take something that's relatively new versus the original product that's been out for maybe 10 or 15 or 20 years? Uh, There's got to be a little bit of skin in the game for the patient to to take a relatively new medicine that, that has been studied and has been approved by regulators, but it just doesn't have the volumes and volumes of research that's been done over the years. And so, you know, patients have to feel that these biosimilars are safe and that they're effective and that they're good for them and that they're not a bad thing. And so there, there is a, there's an educational piece that has to go along with the introduction of biosimilars. There's transparency that has to go along so that Patients don't feel the governments are pushing these things and telling them what to take or or worse yet, not telling them what they're taking. And that has always been a big issue in the introduction of biosimilars is that sometimes patients aren't being told they're being switched from something that's working for them or that they're being put on a biosimilar as a start of treatment without being told that they're being put on it. And so Then later a patient finds out and then there's this whole trust issue with the medical system and trust issue with the physician. And it's just easier if everybody's open and upfront at the beginning that we're transparent about what a patient is getting and why they're getting it. And that I believe leads to greater uptake of biosimilars. And that's what we want. We want biosimilars to succeed. We want this to be a success story. In order for that to happen, then we've got to continue to not only have transparency, as I've said, But as Michael has said, we have to maintain high standards of approval because the last thing we want to do is switch a patient to a biosimilar that has been approved based on insufficient data in some 
up-and-coming country or a middle-income country or lower-income country that you know, may not have the resources of an FDA or a European medicines agency behind them. But if you start lowering those standards, not only is it insulting to the people of those communities that they should have an inferior set of standards for approval in their countries, but it's unsafe, not only unsafe for them, but it's unsafe for the whole biosimilars market. Because if a problem happens somewhere in the world, the media is not going to say, oh, well, you know, it's a little different in Colombia because they lower this. It's just going to hear 100 patients died from taking a biosimilar. And that's going to destroy all the hard work that's happened over the last 10 years around the world to, uh, to sort of get uptake better, to make biosimilars more a part of the standard therapy. So those are some of the hot issues that we focus on as patient advocates. And I'll I'll close that out with one more hot issue, and that is the control over a patient. There has been a movement that I have personally witnessed over the years in this space where regulators have essentially tried to remove physicians from the equation. They have essentially said, if you are a person suffering from a certain disease and you're going to be given a medicine, we're going to decide that the medicine best for you is this. And they end up switching an entire class of people, entire group of people to a medicine that they were not taking previously. They were taking something else. And the government made the decision to switch them for the sole reason of saving money. And that's what we call non-medical switching. It's being switched from your medicine that's working for you, not for a medical reason, but to save the payer, whether it's a private payer, a private insurance company, or whether it's a government. You're, you're saving the payer money. And if that's going to happen, physicians have to be part of that equation. If I'm on a buy, if you're, you, Tiffany, if you're on a biologic, and you are, and somebody's going to switch that biologic that's working for you to something else, you want your physician involved in that decision-making, right? 100%. Believe it or not, that's been a major challenge that we've worked on around the world to keep physicians involved and engaged and in charge of our healthcare. And with that, I'll turn it back over to you, but that's sort of what the patient perspective on a couple of these hot issues has been. Can I just make one point of clarification? When Andy said, Andy, when you said regulators, I think we have to be very careful here by not using the word regulator because that has to do with the FDA and the EMA and Health Canada. We're talking about policymakers Policymakers. and health ministers and governmental entities like in Australia but regulators are different. They usually do not have the decision around switching. It's usually made at the provincial or the state level. Right. Um, And it's a really important distinction. I want to clarify something Andy said, because this actually involves two different issues. One is, as a simple example, if you were on an allergy medicine or an antibiotic, there may be a preferred agent. And in the past, there's preferred biologic agents, preferred originals and you might be best off on one or on one, but your insurance carrier may decide that the whole class of people have to move to the other. So that's one type of medical switching. And then the other is switching from your originator biologic to a biosimilar. So they're not the same thing. You could be switched in two ways, switched to an entirely different medicine, but also then a similar one. And to echo what Andy was saying, that there's a lot of decision-making here If you look at the surveys from the the ASBM over the years, there's a growing concern. If you look at the 2013 and versus 2019 uh, EU studies, the physicians are more conservative 
in saying that it's critical and important that the physician and patient have control over the decision-making. So this is not something that goes away with time or hasn't so far. We're actually seeing that people are actually becoming more concerned and they want to see the data and transparency that shows that these are the correct decisions to make. It's a loaded playing field. When we use words like similar, uh, to be fair, that word is a loaded word. It sounds like you're getting something, a knockoff maybe or, or something. We grew up in an era of branding, whether it's automobiles or food or clothing. And we, as a world society of consumers, tend to look at the brand name and then we look at the others as similar and are they as good or different. And so we have this branding thing that's in us and it's a little difficult to believe wholly that we should switch over. And so the language is loaded and there's a lot of advertising for the originator products because I believe that they're doing it because it works. And so we have to look at all the players and everything that's there. And when patients come to me, I have to say to them, yes, this is an effective medicine. The FDA uses the word, not the FDA, but the regulators use the word similar, and it has these effects. And so as you see in the surveys, in the most recent U.S. survey, physicians are over 90% confident in prescribing these biosimilars to a new patient. Where we get concerned is because switching stable patients who've been on a medicine for many years, well, we've all seen stories in the news about a medicine that's been out for 10 years, and there's a surprise twist to it. So we worry about these stable people. They got their lives back, and now we put them at risk for a problem. So we want to be careful with that. And the other thing is, truthfully, when you look at the studies, they tend to use single disease state patients. You only have Crohn's. You only have arthritis. You only have this. But there are many people that have multiple conditions. Eight to 10% of people with Crohn's disease will also have rheumatoid arthritis or other conditions. So now you're treating multiple conditions. It's a mosaic, and there aren't good data on that. So we tend to be conservative and say, let the other people go first. We'll see how it goes. We'll get some reports, and then we'll switch you. But we don't want you switched right out of the gun because the insurance company or the government can save a little money. It's not in your best interest. Yes. When Dr. McKibben referenced the 2013, 2019 EU survey and talked about, and that is something that I presented actually at, at ESMO in Barcelona in 2019, that survey, the two things he mentioned, the fact that from 2013 to 2019, physicians became basically more committed to being involved in the decision-making and less accepting of non-physicians making those decisions. But at the same time, physician, as you can imagine, physician confidence grew substantially in that same period of time. So it just goes to show you that, and this is something we really tried to point out, just because physicians say they want to be involved in the decision making, it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have confidence in the product. It means that they want to be involved in the decision making. And you began this podcast by talking about your own experience being, you know, being on a medicine, being affected for six years, and then taking a year for you to find something that worked. And that's really the issue that we have heard from health ministers all over Europe. Uh, I should say some physicians all over Europe, that that's the point, that it takes time to get a patient to stable. And that then is, you know, basically, whether it's switching from a biosimilar to a biologic or a biologic to a biosimilar, in, in some respects, it doesn't matter. It's switching from what got you stable to something else. What I would add to all of that is that this is not hypothetical. This is not a hypothetical scenario. 
that we're laying out there. This is happening now. And I don't know if, Michael, you want to talk about what's happening in Canada, but patients are being forced by the government to switch off of a medicine that is keeping them stable. That is happening all across Canada now. It, it happened in Australia, where metastatic stage four cancer patients were taken off of a medicine with a week's notice of a medicine that was working with them and no availability to get that medicine. The manufacturer was allowed to take it out of the country when a biosimilar was introduced. So, you know, these challenges to the doctor-physician relationship are real and are growing and are happening right now around the world. So this is not a hypothetical conversation. And and I want to just let Tiffany get back on her schedule as we move forward and then get back to that particular topic, though, if, if, it, if it comes up. Certainly, at the end, you're going to talk about resources. And as you mentioned in the beginning, we just, ASBM and you were a part of, you know, two webinars that we just did. One of those webinars was on the non-medical switching that's going on in Canada. And just that is certainly a reference and a resource that I would recommend people uh, look to if they're interested in that issue. Yeah, 100%. Those resources, we will be sharing those. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, and and we'll probably do some spinoff conversations of this episode just on those resources because they are extremely well-written, easy to understand from a patient perspective, and really gives a lot of not only education, but advice. And that's really what I wanted to sort of zero in on here is something that Dr. McKibben alluded to. And it's sort of when is it okay to be substituted? When isn't it okay? And more clarification, we've talked a lot about non-medical switching, but the difference of non-medical switching, we've talked about interchangeability, but we haven't really dove into that so much yet. And then there's automatic substitution. So I was hoping somebody could just clarify those three, because I know that they are individual issues and, and but important for our patient community to understand. I'll start just by saying that there's, from a policy perspective, what we have seen, and I know Andy's been with me when I've been meeting with Health Canada, and there's an argument about interchangeability and what interchangeability means and the recognition uh, of you know the fact that interchangeability means one thing in the U.S., it means another thing in Canada, similar to what it means in the EU. And so there has been this little bit of a battle. But let's start with substitution. At the end of the day, in the particularly in the U.S., the idea of substitution has to do with specifically switching from one medicine to another. We've talked about you know the non-medical switching in general, but in terms of substitution, we're really talking about physician-led substitution or pharmacy-level substitution, and I'll get into the interchangeable thing in a moment. But really, in the United States, we've laid a tremendous groundwork for automatic substitution, which is widely accepted. And generally, you know, certainly we know that within the generic framework and understanding that a biosimilar is not a generic, but when you start talking about interchangeability, you're getting closer to the idea of at least the additional data so that physicians have additional levels of confidence. So in the United States, and ASBM was involved from this from 2013 on, you know, we worked to basically say that once an interchange, so an interchangeable biosimilar is essentially not a better biosimilar. And it's a very important distinction. It's a biosimilar that has additional data. And that additional data may give physicians a higher level of confidence within, because they're always looking for data. And we'll certainly let Dr. McKibben talk about that in a second. But 
that we've seen that globally as we talk to people about the concept of interchangeable biosimilar. We met with Australia, with the TGA, and with the Department of Health in Australia, and they were very intrigued about the idea of interchangeability because they recognized that what the physician community in, in Australia said is we want more data. We don't think there's enough data for us. And that was in a context of where essentially Australia tried to go to automatic substitution but allowed the physician to basically say whether or not they would, you know, put do not substitute. And 98% of physicians put do not substitute. They didn't think that would happen. They thought physicians wouldn't do that because it was an additional step. And so interchangeability is essentially where the FDA approves a biosimilar as an interchangeable. It requires additional studies. It must demonstrate that there'll be no difference in any given patient. It has, for the most part, and there are some exceptions, around insulins in particular, but you're generally required to provide switching studies that show no difference between switching back and forth. Once it's approved by the FDA as an interchangeable, ASBM and others have worked for, you know, from 2013, almost 10 years, we worked to establish because substitution is determined at the state level, generally through legislation or rulemaking. And so right now, all 50 states have legislation that basically was passed that allow for automatic substitution to happen once it's approved as an interchangeable. This was all worked out, by the way, over the period of time. And in the beginning, there was a lot of resistance to this by the physicians and the pharmacists and lots of entities. Basically, in most states, it is required that within 72 hours, you notify the physician of the substitution. So there is the, the pharmacist must notify the physician. So there's, from a pharmacovigilance standpoint, there's that give and take, and that was part of what was worked out. But essentially, we all generally come to agree that if it's an interchangeable, then we are fine with pharmacy-level automatic substitution. And that's what both ties in the idea of interchangeable, which is that additional data from the FDA, and automatic substitution, which is, again, an accepted practice. Basically, it's all been worked out in the United States and basically every every one of the 50 states recognizes that if you're approved by an automatic if you're approved as an interchangeable that's going to happen and that's really clearing a lot of brush to to move forward on that issue in terms of the work that was done from 2013 I believe the last state was last year it was Oklahoma I think was last and it was uh, in 2021 so that kind of wraps that piece up the switching again when you start talking about switching you've got you know we already kind of previewed non-medical switching and you can get into that more, but switching generally has to do with you're going from one product to another. And I mentioned, you know, it could be from a biologic to a biosimilar, a biosimilar to a biologic. Generally, what we at ASBM have always said is that no matter what kind of switching it is, the physician should be involved in the switching decision. And at that, I'd like to turn it over to Dr. McKibben because it's certainly something he's advocated for many years and is personally involved in. Yeah, it's a complicated issue. And so let me just say this about interchangeability and switching. It isn't always about the medicine. Sometimes it's about side effects. It's about factory closings, lack of availability and things like that. We've all seen over the years where uh, baby formula or other things may be withdrawn from the market because of factory problems. So that's a reason for one, pharmacovigilance and tracking. Because if someone's being switched more than once and something happens, you want to know where did that come from. So we really do need to track these medications. And you have to have a central record, and the patient's record should have every medicine that they've been on. So 
I know that there's some acceleration in the interchangeability. I was looking today over some data for adalimumab, which is a, uh, an antibody for uh, autoimmune disease. And I think next year there's two interchangeables coming out or slated to come out just for that particular agent. So we're going to see more of that. Uh, the concern is you may get switched, but if your insurance carrier or government keeps negotiating the contract and they keep coming up with a new agent that's cheaper, could you be on three, four, or five different medicines over a course of the same number of years? And is that good? Is it the same? We don't have data on that. And so as a physician, I tend to be conservative for my patients. I want the data that says there are no increased risks. And that's why we want those studies, because this is a lifetime process. If you look at, and I shouldn't bring this up, but the COVID monoclonal antibodies, that's a one-time agent. Biologics are generally long-term agents. And so you have long-term issues of autoimmune processes, reactions to the medications. One-time agents aren't really included in this, even if they're made the same way. So the long-term tracking needs to be there. And a lot of the policymakers don't live in a long-term world. They're living to the next quarter, the next election, the next appointment or whatever. So we want to make sure as physicians that we've got the long-term view here for patient safety. And that's what we want. And that's part of the hesitancy about switching complex long-term patients who took years to become stable and just having them switch to save a little money. Doesn't In fact, switching in many studies, I did a white paper for DDNC showing that switches, even to biosimilars, can result in increased cost because of patients' uh, fears, switching insurance policies, switching to different physicians to get different treatments. There's increased cost to the system by switching. It's not just the cost of medication. So it's a complex issue with a lot of stakeholders and players. And while we tend to just talk about the medicine, it's actually the healthcare system and how much time and energy is spent going back and forth, maybe just to find the security, but we need to track and we have to have that safety information. So it's paramount. And that's what keeps getting shown in our surveys. Again, as Michael reiterated there, we are becoming more conservative about that, but we are confident that these medicines are real and that they work. That's really, really important to, to note. I just can't stress that enough, that they, they work, that they're effective, that they're safe. Uh, and I was going to ask how many interchangeable are there currently? I mean, this is something that patients are going to be asking. Yeah, there are three approved. In fact, the most recent one was just the first week of August. That was uh, the third interchangeable was for Lucentis. And that's actually our next webinar is going to be on ophthalmics, which is a whole other area where it's showing, you know, as, as we look at the issue, ophthalmics shows that when we conducted physician surveys, we never included ophthalmologists before because they weren't relevant. And now all of a sudden you have a whole new space, you have a whole new education process. And, you know, we kind of view this as, the cutting edge of biosimilars as it expands into other specialties, all of a sudden you don't, you realize that those groups were left out of the education process and you're starting all over again. And so ultimately this does really come down to the degree of education. You can hear even within this panel conversation, there are so many topics that come up, but I do think the responsibility and it does fall on the regulators, but not exclusively on the regulators. It needs to be done by the patient community. Obviously industry plays a part as well, which is to give 
fair, accurate, and, you know, information that basically patients can trust and believe. And again, when we talk about policy and we talk about, you know, just the kind of the end of it, the other end of it, the non-medical switching side, that just raises all kinds of issues that really don't, we view it as it does not really get into the quality of the medicine. It gets into who should be making decisions basically on behalf of the patient. It doesn't say that, you know, what's going on in Canada, you can judge it from the perspective of where everyone's being switched. And the only people that are making that decision are the government and patients basically accept it. Does that mean that that's, you know, as we have argued, and that's the target of our second webinar was, that's not how you build long-term confidence within the patient community, the physician community, that's short-term gain, and it really undermines long-term confidence. And, you know, that's kind of, we think the role of of the ASBMs and the AI arthritis and, you know, really even within the physician community and the, and the government to just do a, a, a fair job of sharing as much data as you can and as much information. I'm going to just ask Andy or Dr. McKibben, if you have anything else that you wanted to add. No, other than just to uh, put a, a word on Michael's last thought there, transparency is the term that I often use. Is the more information you throw out there, every stakeholder will take that information and evaluate it. And by having meetings such as this one and talking, we can air these things out and find out the significance and share our values and conclusions. So transparency is the key word that I, I really use. And I would say one more thing to that, uh, to Dr. McKibben's point, and that is when we conducted our webinars. And that's what you are, you are beginning a process and a conversation with this. You've already talked about, you know, moving on to different sections that come out of this conversation. You can't cover this topic in an hour on a podcast, but at the end of the day, it's saying not only are we willing to provide information, but we're willing to stand there as a resource so that you want to ask us a particular question. We will give you an answer to that question. You can figure out by looking at ASBM's website or Andy's website or your website, the credibility of the organization. But I think it's really important. And we did this in our webinar. We said we will answer any question that comes in. We will not say, well, we didn't get to that. We'll get to it. And we're actually working on a follow-up paper to that effect because a lot of it is just that the patient community doesn't really have the time because they're working on so many issues to know where to get exactly the information they need on every single topic that's out there. And that's the benefit of, you know, the podcast that you're providing today. And the one thing I would add is that there is a resource out there for patient organizations, and that is a webinar that we put on. We did a two-day, six-hour training webinar at the Global Colon Cancer Association in partnership with the Alliance for Safe Biologic Medicines and with the World Patients Alliance. And we, and you know, Tiffany, because you were on there and you were very active on all six hours, but um, we archived all of that information and uh, patient groups can find everything they, they need to know about biosimilars, biologic medicines, the differences, all of the issues that we've talked about today are all addressed by many different panelists during those six hours. It's all free and it can all be found at learnbiosimilars.org. Learnbiosimilars.org is the replay of those six hours of biosimilar training for advocates. And something that AR arthritis is going to do, because yes, we did attend, I attended the entire six hours. I was, the, and I wasn't, 
I was interacting. And uh, I think I even emailed afterwards at, to some of you and said that was just absolutely outstanding. And we as our organization, something that we tend to do as people living with the diseases ourselves is we like to identify these great resources and have watch parties. So we will literally watch segments with them and then we're there to ask questions as well in real time. So that is something to look forward to. It's We learn so much from our community when we do that. And it's, you know, it can be kind of fun because we can stop, we can pause, we can rant about something that we're mad about, you know, whatever. <laughs> something that that is of concern. But we really do learn about a lot about each other too as a community and, and ways that we can help each other through that. I think as we start to get to the last sort of segment, which was the resources, I just want to ask this question. So as a person living with the diseases, we are told it's time you're going to be switched to a biosimilar. What should we do? What is the next step as a person living with these diseases that we we should take? Well, I think I'll start with that because I think I'd be involved with that. I'd be prescribing, you'd be getting an infusion or a prescription. So I would be notified. And so the first thing is I would hope to have had the discussion with you in advance because often when I write the prescriptions now, our electronic records will pop up what's covered, what's not covered. And so the discussion that biosimilars are appropriate, if I didn't think that you should have it because of some complex history problem, I would have that discussion with you and that I would do uh, an authorization request to deny that switch. Um, So what can you do as a patient? I think one, go to the prescriber. They need to know. You can call and leave a message or use your portals, et cetera. Two, ask them very concretely. Don't say, what should I do? Say, is this okay for me? Ask a concrete question. Is it appropriate for me to switch? Do you have concerns? Maybe a phone conversation or something or a visit or whatever. That's the place to start. The other thing is that insurance carriers and policymakers need to hear from people who are unhappy. So put it on your agenda to say, if you're unhappy with something, to write a letter of complaint or an email of complaint. Because if you never complain, then you can't complain about the results, you know? an important concept. So I think I would want to be contacted first. I do think that you should go to valid information sources, agencies, organizations that validate their information rather than just somebody's sales site or somebody who's got an ax to grind because there's so much wasted time and energy on the internet or whatever, and you shouldn't waste your time there. Life's too short. I would just say that, you know, as I listen to this conversation, I I, I had kind of a unique perspective when I was at HHS because I was both, I worked in the secretary's office, but at, I was there when we were creating Part D. And so I was involved in both the development of the of Part D, all of the media component of Part D, and then literally taking phone calls from Medicare beneficiaries on Part D and questions they might have. I was also there when when there was the vaccine shortage. And so we actually did a campaign that traveled around with the Surgeon General and and answered people's questions. And the biggest challenge really is that each individual person has a question that is probably representative of some other person. And every question is valid. But how do you get information to them in a way that they, you know, sometimes it's just a lack of trust. You know, as Dr. McKibben says about, well, what, where do you go? 
so you know, really biosimilars has been fairly heated as this has all evolved over the period of time. And we at ASPM, I'm a pol- former regulator, policy person, said I want everything to be that you can a- answer any question. We can point to a resource. We have been very data-driven. We've been based upon surveys from physicians and really talking with the patient community. And so what is the first thing you do? I think of the first thing that met, I literally met many, many Medicare beneficiaries. And it was a really unique experience to understand that the individual, you know, when we were dealing, developing that policy, we would say, well, you know, this is really complicated. You don't know what each individual patient wants. You don't know what is important to each individual patient. When we were developing Part D, it might be, I care what pharmacy is closest. I care, you know, what. it's not always as simple. It doesn't always come down to money. It doesn't always come down to, you know, one particular thing. And so recognizing multiple resources is important. Packaging resources is important. But ultimately, we all have an obligation. And certainly, you know, when we at ASBM want to get information out there and we make ourselves accessible. And I think that's really, you know, I think patient community, uh, you know, is a really good place to start because they're coming at it from the perspective of understanding the needs of the patient. So you are a patient. Andy is someone who really understands the patient perspective, not only from his own experiences personally, but also from his life experiences. And I think, you know, I have a brother who who uh, died of thyroid cancer. We've all had someone who's been affected. And I think it's just, you know, really taking that to heart that our job is to assuage people without fooling people. And, you know, I think that's the role. And ultimately, you know, you, Tiffany, are probably, and Andy are best situated. And, and, you know, my experience as a regulator and Dr. McKibbins as a physician, we all have different shoes that we're, that we have stood in. Uh, but we need to understand that we all kind of ultimately should be working for the patient because that's ultimately what this is all about. No matter where you are standing, this is about access and about treatment and about, you know, providing a level of comfort and and trust. Because if they don't trust you, then basically it, it, it affects every aspect of their life. Absolutely. I wanted to, in addressing Dr. McKibben's questions and, and advice on what to ask, there is a great resource from the Biosimilars Training Program, a patient advocacy toolkit that we've actually referenced a few times today, even if we didn't say it, and has a lot of information on education, on what is a biosimilar, what is non-medical switching, what we've talked about. And it has a sheet of questions Hmm. that you can ask. And I was looking at it yesterday and there's quite a few questions. It's, It's something that I think could be very customizable too, to your unique needs. So we will make sure that we have a link to that toolkit because it has that in there and it's, and maybe on one of our breakout 360s, we'll do a, we'll walk through it and we'll, we'll do our own little toolkit. So Andy, I wanted to also turn it back to you for any last comments or any plugs for some great takeaways or resources as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's nothing I could add to what Michael just said. I was ready to stand up and applaud everything he just said, because what he said was that no matter what shoes you wear in this whole arena, and there's a lot of stakeholders in this biologics and biosimilars arena, over 1.2 billion patients around the world have have taken a biologic medicine. You know, these these things are transforming patients' lives. These are making... Kids with 
disabilities who couldn't get out of a wheelchair are now playing sports in school. And these things are curing other diseases. So, I mean, these are the real deal. These are here to stay. These are the next 10 to 20 years of medicine as the new breakthroughs come out. And as long as everyone understands whether you're a payer, a manufacturer, a patient, a regulator, a policymaker, a physician, everyone must remember that it's the patient that's taking these medicines. It's the patient who's sick, who's got a disease, who's taking these very complex medicines. And that should be the main concern of every aspect of biosimilar policy development. Whether you are a stakeholder in it for profit or to help patients, none of it should matter. Everybody has to be concerned about what's in the best interest of the patient taking these medicines. And, and I think that everything you've heard today and then the resource that you've mentioned, learnbiosimilars.org, you can find everything you need to know about biosimilars from terminology, a glossary of terms, to patient stories, you'll hear from patients, to, as you say, this whole toolkit that you can take away and advocate for yourself to make sure that... Um, Make sure you're on the right medicine and, and the people that you represent, if you're an advocate, are on the right medicine for them. So with that, I'll close it out from my, from my perspective. All right. Wonderful. And I am looking at a very, very large list of amazing resources sitting in front of me. And I just want to confirm, I see a lot of video, uh, white papers. Are these all available on the website that you mentioned? I see a lot of head shaking. Yeah, yes. safebiologics.org. We have the surveys that Dr. McKibben referenced, the webinars that we just completed. We have written a number of white papers, which really were the basis for the webinars we just did. Dr. McKibben and I are just finishing up another white paper on the U.S. physician survey that will be coming out uh, soon. So yeah, lots of resources there, videos, et cetera, um, anything you need. And if you have any questions in particular, there's a way to get to us as well. And we are always standing by. All right. Wonderful. And you can also visit us at AIarthritis.org. And there is a biosimilars page where you can ask questions, our biosimilars hotline. And we will, of course, have all of these resources attached to this episode and all of the breakout 360 conversations that we plan to have to keep this conversation going. So in saying that, I want to thank all of my guests. Thank you, Dr. McKibben. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Michael, for being here. This has been absolutely amazing. You all have been outstanding. So thank you. Thank you, Tiffany. Thank you. Thanks Very enjoyable. All right. Yeah. Thank you, Andy. Thanks, uh, Dr. McKibben. All thank right. You all. Yes. Yep. I'm so to a and- soccer game. <laughs> you all have a great weekend. Good luck, Andy. Thanks. Bye now. Bye thank bye you, guys. All right. Bye bye. And then there you go. That is a wrap. So you can find this and all of our episodes at AIarthritis.org. Just look for the link to our talk show. And while you're there, feel free to give a donation because it is your support that keeps episodes like this going. Also, make sure that you check out all of those resources and join us for many breakout conversations to come about this topic and other topics in our 360th segments that you can find on social media and by signing up for our newsletter, which you can also find on our website. So thank you all so much for tuning in. Pull up a seat at the table, join the conversation because only together can we change the stories of tomorrow. Tomorrow.
AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI arthritis news and events. 